You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Voices for Justice is a podcast that uses adult language and discusses sensitive and potentially triggering topics, including violence, abuse, and murder. This podcast may not be appropriate for younger audiences. All parties are innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Some names have been changed or omitted per their request or for safety purposes. Listener discretion is advised. My name is Sarah Turney, and this is Voices for Justice. Today I am discussing the case of 13-year-old Brandy Myers, who went door-to-door raising money for her school in 1992 and was never seen again. I know I say this a lot, but in all transparency, Brandy's case is one that is deeply personal to me. I met Brandy's younger sister, Kristen, years ago at an event for families of the missing here in Arizona. We were introduced by Detective Stuart Summershoe from the Phoenix Police Department. He actually worked both of our sister's cases and encouraged us to attend a group counseling session at the event. If I'm being honest, I wasn't too thrilled about doing this session, but I told Detective Summershoe that I would. I was really at the event in hopes of being able to speak with the news crews that were there in order to help get my sister's name back into the media. But as I walked away from the event and news crews up the stairs filled with dread that I was losing some potential time with the press, Detective Summershoe introduced me to Kristen, and she was kind of my saving grace. She was so real. She didn't feel sorry for me. Though, of course, she was polite when we exchanged stories about the terrible circumstances that brought us to the event. There was just no looks of pity or being awkward like I was definitely being. She showed me where the meeting room is, introduced me to the other people in the group, and made sure that we exchanged contact information so we could keep in touch. I actually wasn't able to get any interviews with the news that day. But Kristen did. She was and continues to be a force to this day. After meeting Kristen, we did keep in touch, and I followed her journey fighting for Brandy. She was on Crime Watch Daily. She went to the 2018 CrimeCon event as a special guest of Marissa Jones from the Vanished podcast. And she collected thousands of signatures on letters addressed to the Maricopa County Attorney's Office, asking for her sister's killer to be tried. And she continued to collect signatures at local events until she carried a stack of thousands of signed letters that she could barely carry into the prosecutor's office. Kristen really inspired me so much in my own fight for my sister. But, despite the Phoenix Police Department telling Kristen that they believe they know exactly what happened to her sister Brandy, who killed her, how she died and how her body was disposed of. And despite her alleged killer literally being tried for two other murders as I speak, they have yet to be able to bring charges in Brandy's case. And they encouraged Kristen to get media coverage in hopes of creating public pressure to pursue charges. 
Over the years, I have seen how this has worn on Kristen, how invigorated she was when we first met, and how discouraged she has gotten as she watches her sister's killer be tried for these other cases and not Brandy's. And I mean literally watch, because she tries to attend as many of his court dates as possible. But since she's not officially a victim in the case, she isn't provided any updates or victim services. So she often shows up at a court date that has been rescheduled last minute due to the virus. Like we saw in the Jody LaCornu case with her twin sister Jenny, Kristen went above and beyond for her sister. Although Kristen truly considers her sister's case to be solved, it is still unresolved and in need of justice. So this is the case of Brandy Myers. This episode of Voices for Justice is sponsored by ZocDoc. If you guys have been following my journey on social media, you know that I am in my Sarah era. After everything I've been through over the last couple years, I'm really just focusing on myself and doing that unapologetically. So I have become that one friend in my friend group that loves to treat myself. A lot of the time that looks like a long bath, a face mask, maybe a special foot soak, but I also knew that I needed to make my health a priority. And that's where ZocDoc comes in. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. What I really liked is that all the doctors have verified reviews from actual real patients. You don't have to just guess if they're good. ZocDoc is how I found my new doctor. Go to ZocDoc.com justice and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's zocdoc.com slash justice. Zocdoc.com slash justice. Brandy Lynn Myers was born on March 13, 1979. She grew up in the Sunny Slope area of Phoenix, Arizona, with her mother and her younger sister, Kristen. According to Kristen, their father was never really in the picture. But here is Kristen describing what Brandy was like. Um, she was sweet. She was a really sweet girl. She had, um, you know, a learning disability. So she was like, you know, quieter, more naive than, you know, most kids her age. Um, you know, it set her back a couple years, you know, like she was more into Barbies and things when she would have been into boys, you know, something like that. So, but she was really, really sweet. And she was a girly girl. She, um, you know, didn't do tomboy things like I did, but she would try to learn um, how to be a tomboy so she could hang out with me and my little friends, you know, and we climbed fences and trees and things like that. And she would really try to learn how to jump over walls so she could play with us. Like she was just really, really, really sweet. And I don't know, that's what I remember most about her, you know, things like... When I'd be grounded, she could have been outside playing with her friends, but she'd stay inside and play with me because I was grounded and couldn't go outside and play. Like, that was her character. By the year 1992, Brandy was 13 and Kristen was 11. They lived in a small apartment complex in the Sunny Slope area of Phoenix, Arizona, near Metro Center Mall. Next to the mall was the I-17 freeway, the Arizona Canal, and Arizona's only real theme park that just rebranded that year from golf and stuff to castles and coasters. This area was kind of in this in-between stage, 
where it was this booming area for families, but it was slowly becoming pretty unsafe. Metro Center Mall was actually the filming location of Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, which came out three years prior. But despite its beautiful detailing and picture-perfect appearance of the ideal 80s-slash-90s mall, it was really going downhill. I actually worked at Castles and Coasters a few years ago, and Metro Center Mall and the surrounding area is pretty much a wasteland now. The mall is actually now set to be torn down due to the area being riddled with crime. But before its closing, the community came out in huge numbers to do one last drive around the mall, blasting their music for old times' sake. This area was a staple for the community. But like I said, by 1992, it was quickly becoming a place that was unsafe to be, especially at night. This brings us to Tuesday, May 26th, 1992. Brandy was super excited because earlier in the month, she went door-to-door asking people to pledge money for her participation in her school's bookathon. I don't know about you guys, but I used to love these types of fundraisers for school. But if you aren't familiar, essentially, it's one of those fundraisers where you ask your friends, family, and neighbors to promise to donate money based off of an activity, like running laps or jump roping. But again, in this case, it was a bookathon. So in this case, people were donating money based off of how many books Brandy read during the fundraiser. And today was the day that Brandy was going to collect all of the pledges. And she was pretty sure that she would earn enough to go on a trip to the zoo and get some prizes. Which, to be honest, I never got that far in a fundraiser. I always won like a bookmark or whatever was lowest on the tier of prizes. So again, Brandy was super excited. But there was a problem. Brandy actually lost her list of names and addresses of the people who pledged to donate. So her plan was to just go back door-to-door around her neighborhood in hopes that they remembered her and their pledges. Kristen and Brandy were actually at home with a babysitter at the time. And the girls did plan on going together to collect this money. But at the last minute, like sisters tend to do, Kristen decided that she wanted to hang out with somebody else. So, Brandy set off alone in the direction of her school. Unfortunately, there are a lot of conflicting reports about what time Brandy left her apartment. I've seen anywhere in the range from 5pm to 8pm. In an attempt to get more information and clarify things, I did request records for Brandy's case way back in November of 2020 from the Phoenix Police Department. But, as of recording this, they have yet to respond to my request. So unfortunately, our timeline is pretty rough. Which is difficult, because in May, the sun in Arizona sets pretty late. So I can't be sure if it was dark or not when Brandy left her apartment. But Brandy goes out to collect this money. And at some point, when she doesn't come back home, the babysitter does go out looking for her. But Brandy is nowhere to be found. When Brandy and Kristen's mother gets home, the babysitter lets her know that Brandy was missing and their mother calls the police right away. And to the credit of the Phoenix Police Department, it does appear that all available resources were deployed immediately. They sent a ton of officers to go door-to-door, they taped off the apartment complex, and there were helicopters and dogs to assist in the search. While police were questioning neighbors, they spoke to a girl in the same grade as Brandy, and she says that she was actually with Brandy right before she disappeared. She tells police that she met up with her while she was collecting these donations, and that they went up to the Smitty's grocery store to spend the money that Brandy had collected. 
but when they got to Smitty's, this girl had to use the bathroom. So she said that Brandy waited outside of the bathroom for her, and once she got out, Brandy was gone. But this didn't make sense to anyone who knew Brandy. They say that she never would have spent the money from the bookathon instead of turning it into her school. Not only because she was a good kid, but because remember, she was super excited about going to the zoo and all of the prizes that came along with the bookathon. And on top of that, Kristen says that she actually saw Brandy walk in the complete opposite direction of Smitty's. So Kristen did some digging into this statement. So I spoke to her on the phone and I'm like, hey, you know, like you reported back then that my sister was with you. And I'm like, you know, the more I'm looking into it, like I'm learning at this point, I'm meeting Brandy's um, school friends and like learning more about who she was when she was outside of when she was with me, you know? So nobody, nobody knew that like this girl just, she said she was Brandy's friend and whatever, but come to find out she picked on her at school. And like, there was just no reason that she would be with this girl. And, and there's no way that she was going to go spend this money when she really wanted to go to the zoo. So I just called her out and I was like, you know, what you said, her being over there completely contradicts this whole um, explanation to me of what happened to my sister, where she went, how she died, blah, blah, blah. And you saying that you were with Brandy over here is like the complete con con contradicting everything that they just said. So obviously it's bullshit, you know, and I said, it's because of you saying that, that Brandy is still listed as last seen at Smitty's when it should have been two doors down from Brian Miller's house. And I'm like, you know, I just presented her with all this like evidence that she was full of shit. And like, I had found out through her friends that she was one of the kids that picked on her at school. And like, I didn't know that because I pretty much uh, didn't play with Brandy at school. Like she was a nerd. I was a cool kid. I didn't hang out with her and her friends, but I would watch her. And like, if I ever seen her crying on the playground, I'd be like, who did what? And I'd go beat up that kid. So that's why I'm super scrappy. Like all the kids were bigger because Brandy's older than me. So you know, I was <laughs> fighting for her pretty early on. And anyway, so they're like, no, this girl is, um, she was one of Brandy's bullies and she would pick on all the kids in the special ed class that Brandy was in. So it just didn't jive. And then she tells me that she never made that statement. She absolutely doesn't know why the news or the police are reaching out to her. Like she, she doesn't even barely remember this happening, which doesn't jive either because this was like a huge thing. They had my uh, little apartment complex completely taped off. They had helicopters, they had dogs, they had police cars lined up all along the block. They questioned every single person that lived in that apartment complex. And it was a small little apartment complex. There were three floors and there's some apartments on the front and the back, but it's a small little building. And I mean, I can remember every time I've dealt with the police in my life, you know what I mean? And when you're that young and all that is happening and the police are questioning you and, and you claim to be the last person to see somebody, uh, one of your friends who just disappeared, you're not going to barely remember that. Like she was older than me too, because she was in like Brandy's grade. So she had to have been around 13 or 14 too. So there's no way you don't remember. And I'm like, look, you know, I can, um, I can understand like a child just wanting attention from the situation. You know what I mean? So you made up a story. 
you know, I can forgive that. That's the innocence of a child doing something stupid. And I'm like, but you're an adult now. And I know that you know that you're lying. So you need to retract your statement. And I'm like, and she was like, no, I didn't do that. I'm not going to do nothing. And I was like, you know what, lady, there's a special place in hell for people like you. Yeah. So that was a trip. And she really just claimed to never make the statement and doesn't even really remember this happening. But due to the statement from this girl, the focus was now on the area surrounding the Smitties instead of the area around their school. Which, for me, is a bit confusing. I understand that they have to take this statement into consideration. But it directly conflicted with eyewitness testimony of an older couple who lived in the neighborhood. This couple lived in the opposite direction of the Smitties, in the direction in which Kristen told the police that Brandy went. But according to Kristen, this couple told the Phoenix police that Brandy came to their door, went to the house next door that was empty, and then was continuing on to the house of a man named Brian Patrick Miller. And Brandy never made it to the next house. But we'll get to that in a bit. After Brandy went missing, the community really rallied behind her and her family. Hundreds of volunteers came out along with the police to help in the search. In 2019, I actually attended a vigil for Brandy on the anniversary of her disappearance. And I met a woman who was a part of the original search crew. And she showed me a faded button with Brandy's face on it that they were giving out when she went missing. Almost 30 years later, this woman was still in tears over Brandy and aiding in efforts to help try to find answers for her. But despite efforts made by the police and the community and that statement from that couple, Brandy's case would soon go cold. The community was shaken up by Brandy's case. At this time, it was so common for kids to go door to door like that. Even I remember doing it so many times growing up in my neighborhood that was just about 10 miles north of where Brandy grew up. Phoenix was a larger city even back then, and the area wasn't great. But these types of crimes didn't happen to kids, not like this. And pretty soon, the community would go from shaken up to absolutely terrified when reports of murders of young women began popping up in the same area. This episode of Voices for Justice is brought to you by Quince. The weather is getting warmer, which means it's time to put away all the sweaters and pants and say hello to shorts and t-shirts. I absolutely was looking to update my wardrobe without spending a fortune. And I went right back to Quince for that. I personally don't love trendy clothes that I have to replace every few months. I am looking to build my solid core collection of essentials. And with the huge selection at Quince, I can do that. They have premium European linen dresses, blouses and shorts from 30 bucks, washable silk tops, they have jewelry, and so much more. One thing I really love about Quince too is that they only work with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices. And they only use premium fabrics and finishes, so you're not cutting any corners when it comes to quality. I've really been trying to play with pairing casual with more upscale pieces. So recently I just matched a silk skirt with this black tee that I just love and fits really, really well. I think it came together pretty cute. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com justice for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's q-u-i-n-c-e dot justice to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com justice. 
on the evening of Sunday, November 8th, 1992, so about six months after Brandy goes missing, 21-year-old Angela Brasso went for a bike ride along the Arizona Canal. This was actually the day before Angela's birthday, so her boyfriend Joe was pretty glad that she left for her regular bike ride, because he wanted to surprise her by baking her a birthday cake while she was gone. So he rushes and whips up this cake, hides it, and waits for her to get home. But Joe knew something was wrong when Angela wasn't back in time for their favorite Sunday night TV show, In Living Color. So he called 911 to report her missing. But according to Joe, the Phoenix Police Department wouldn't take the report. So he hopped on his bike and went down her normal path to try to find her. But by 10.30, he was calling police again and he finally got an officer to come out and help search for her. And soon, they found the decapitated body of a woman near the Arizona Canal, not too far from Brandy's apartment. Eleven days later, they did confirm this to be Angela Brasso, when her head was found stuck in a grate in the canal. Less than a year later, in September of 1993... 17-year-old Melanie Burness went for a bike ride along that same canal and went missing. Soon after, her body would also be recovered from the Arizona Canal, and she was wearing a bathing suit that did not belong to her. The news ran wild with these stories, that this once booming area for families was now becoming extremely unsafe. Here is a clip from Fox 10 News Arizona right after Melanie was found. Even after sunset, the bikers and joggers keep rolling along, some of them unaware that the body of a murdered teen was found here. Many who travel this path, though, come prepared. Sometimes I do end up riding this path at night. I ride with my mace and usually a chain in my hand because I don't really trust anybody out here, no matter what time of the day or night. Although this bike path near Metro Center is well-traveled, after about 7 o'clock, it's no place to be. Just to give you an idea, it is total darkness out here. Well, I don't wear it during the day. Obviously, at night, sure, there's a concern, but we always ride during the day, and I've been down here at night, and there's nothing on this place at night. Many who use this bike path remember another murder in this area a year ago. 22-year-old Angela Brasso went on a bike ride and was murdered. Her killer never found. It's causing some uneasiness. You know, it's kind of strange in the same place. You know, what did they do with the case on Angela? I mean, what happened there? this has happened again in the same area. Now, Phoenix police acknowledge there are some similarities between the Brasso and Burnus murders. It is something they are certainly looking at tonight, but at this point, they do not believe the two were the work of the same killer. John, there was also some word that other women have been attacked in that area. Yeah, Claren, there was some word, and they are looking for people who may have come across the suspect in this case. They don't have a suspect, but someone who may have been in the area. It's possible that a woman was riding in that area or someone encountered the person and got away. And they're looking for people who might know something They'd tonight. like to hear from them. You bet. Thank you, John. Okay. Both Angela Brasso and Melanie Burness were sexually assaulted before their deaths. And DNA was collected. But in 1993, DNA testing wasn't widely available to all police departments. And it wouldn't be until almost 20 years later that the semen samples from both women would finally be tested, and police would be able to confirm that Angela Brasso and Melanie Burness were assaulted and most likely killed by the same person. And that person was Brian Patrick Miller. But they needed a sample from Brian to confirm. 
So, an undercover officer posed as a security employee, and he said that he was looking for Brian's help to conduct surveillance at a business near an Amazon warehouse where Brian was actually working. They met up at a Chili's restaurant, and after that meeting, the officer went back and obtained the cup that Brian drank from and made the match. In my research, I actually found a very interesting clip from the founder of Identifiers International, Colleen Fitzpatrick, and she describes how they were able to narrow down the suspect pool from over 2,000 people to just five people and then to Brian Patrick Miller. So this was the, the case that the Phoenix Police Department really wanted to solve. That's the case that was given to generation after generation of new recruits that joined the department. Um, I happened to be at Ishi in 2014, and I had the opportunity to speak to the cold case unit there and telling them about forensic genealogy, what I did, um, how they could apply genealogical tools to solve their, you know, many of their cases in general. And as I was leaving, they said, well, you know, we do have this one case we might send you. So I said, fine. You know, I didn't think much about it. So a few weeks later, you know, here came the Y profile, and um, I ran it against the genetic genealogy databases out there, and I was able to come up with a name that, was, that matched their profile. The first test available was Y-DNA testing, and because the Y-DNA follows the male line of the family, like the family name, it was really popular among genealogists um, studying their family, their family names. Um, so 17 years later, there's hundreds of thousands of people that have taken the Y-DNA test, and many of those results are posted online in, you know, large and small groups of people studying either the same last name. Um, they're all descendants of some famous person, or they live in a certain geographical area, or they're, they all share some, some kind of common family history. So, um, you know, that's a great resource for the forensic community because it's public data. The challenge is you have to mine it for information. So what we've done at Identifinders is create software that can do that, that can take a wide profile of an unknown and, you know, find a match in those uh, thousands of databases out there. So when the Phoenix Police Department gave me their Y profile on this case, that's what I did. I applied the software to find a match in those, you know, hundreds of thousands of profiles, and it came up with three exact matches to the name Miller. They had a list of 2,000 suspects, and having the name narrowed it down to five. And from that five, there was only one that floated to the top because his profile was pretty much what the VDOC Society and the FBI had said to look for. So they managed to get a DNA sample from him and process it, and the detective told me that the group was in um, like a boring staff meeting at 4.30 on a Friday night, something like that, and everybody, you know, wanted to go home, and then they got a call from the DNA lab saying, hey, can we come over and uh, talk to you? And they said, okay, sure, you know, everybody is just real tired. And hung up and everybody was laughing and saying, hey, I bet you they're gonna come and tell us they solved the canal murders, right? You know, and everybody was laughing and said, nah, they probably won overtime, you know. And then they walked in, the DNA people said, that was him, you got him. And the whole room just exploded. 
you know, they said some detectives were crying, some detectives were sitting there with their mouth open staring into space, and there was a big decision, you know, what, what should they do, and they decided to go over and, you know, arrest the man and, you know, see what was going on, and then, you know, it went from there, and I understand the trial's going to be next year. So, on January 13, 2015, Brian Patrick Miller is arrested on first-degree murder charges for both Angela and Melanie. And the police begin digging deeper into this man and other unsolved cases in the area that could possibly be linked to him. When the police looked into 43-year-old Brian Patrick Miller, they discovered that he was actually pretty well-known in the Phoenix area for his elaborate steampunk-inspired style of cosplay and for his out-of-commission police cruiser that he fixed up, covered in fake blood, and had the words zombie killer on the side. There are even pictures of Brian posing in his cosplay outfit with the Phoenix police next to his car. And this passion for cosplay seemed to be the main source of social interaction for Brian. On his Arizona Steampunk Society profile page, Brian wrote, quote, Gadgets that demand creativity and a craftsmanship that can only come from thinking outside of the box. It also brings with it a higher level of thinking in regards to etiquette, morals, and equality. End quote. But despite this statement about morals and equality that in all transparency makes me want to scream, the Phoenix Police Department soon found out that Brian Patrick Miller had quite a violent history. This episode of Voices for Justice is brought to you by June's Journey. I'm pretty sure everyone here loves a good mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. You get to step into the role of June Parker and search for hidden clues to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder. You engage your observation skills to quickly uncover key pieces of information that lead to chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. So what does that mean? Well, June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game. Essentially, you find hidden clues and uncover this mystery. But it's also more than that. You can customize your own luxurious estate island, you can join a detective club, and put your skills to the test in a detective league. I like that you can play totally alone, or if you want to play with other people, you can do that too. I find myself playing June's Journey in little breaks during the day, or most frequently at night before I go to bed. Whether you're craving a good mystery or just looking for an escape, I really do recommend June's Journey. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. When he was 15, he was arrested for damaging a wall at a treatment center for troubled teens. That same year, he also got in trouble for setting an occupied building on fire. When he turned 16, he was arrested for stabbing a 24-year-old woman at Paradise Valley Mall in Northeast Phoenix. According to a report from the Arizona Republic, he ran up behind this woman, stabbed her with a 3-inch steak knife, and then ran away to a nearby apartment complex where he was later apprehended. Luckily, this woman lived. But when the police asked him why he would do something like this, he told them that he did this because he liked the way it felt. He also told police that he had a sexual behavior problem, and after being evaluated by medical professionals... A judge strongly recommended that he be considered for the state juvenile sex offenders program. Brian Patrick Miller would serve less than two years for this offense, 
and would be let out of the corrections facility just a few months before his 18th birthday. Which puts us right around the year 1990, just a few years before the death of Brandy Myers, Angela Brasso, and Melanie Burness. Before we get into what police told Kristen they believe happened to Brandy, I want to tell you about two other cases that could be linked to Brian Patrick Miller. Two days after Brandy went missing, the Phoenix police found the remains of a 16-year-old girl that would later be identified as Shannon Amok. Shannon has a tragic backstory. Her mother got pregnant with her at the age of 16 after being sexually assaulted. And at the age of three, her mother gave her over to Child Protective Services. Shannon was quickly adopted, but she was given back to the state's custody at the age of 12 due to behavioral problems. From there, Shannon bounced from foster home to foster home, and she ran away over 40 times. So, when Shannon ran away for the last time, her caregivers didn't even report it. And they even went as far as to petition the court to relinquish their responsibility for Shannon. And they won. But on May 28, 1992, Shannon's body was found in a pile of trash near Deer Valley Road and 26th Street. But no one was looking for her, and no one was able to identify her body. It wouldn't be until her body was exhumed in 2011 that she would be identified. By the year 1998, he moved from the Phoenix area to Everett, Washington, and when police began looking into unsolved crimes in that area, they discovered the case of 14-year-old Victoria Mickelson, who was nearly stabbed to death by an unidentified assailant in the year 2000. Victoria was actually being bullied at her normal bus stop. So, she decided to avoid her bully and walk to her friend's bus stop instead. So, she cut through on this trail that was a pretty popular bike and jogging path. It was about 6 in the morning, so the trail did have some bikers and joggers, but it was pretty empty. Soon, Victoria notices a man come out of the wooded area near the path, and he begins walking behind her. But he didn't look like a jogger. He was wearing ripped jeans and was covered in dirt. At first, she really didn't think much of it but soon she noticed that he was keeping up the same pace as her as she sped up and slowed down. And he was getting closer. Victoria told AZ Central, quote, I turned around to the right and he wasn't there. I turned around to the left and he put his arm around my neck. End quote. And at this point, this man begins stabbing her in the neck and stomach. But Victoria's adrenaline kicks in and she turns to him and kicks the knife out of his hand. They both dive for the knife, but Victoria gets to it first. Not knowing what to do because this poor girl is literally 14 years old and I'm sure terrified, she takes the knife and goes into the fetal position. But the man doesn't just leave, he sits there and struggles with her to get the knife back. And after a few minutes, he actually convinces her to give it back to him, saying he won't hurt her if she does what he says. So Victoria gives him back the knife and he stabs her two more times. The last thing Victoria remembers is him putting her backpack under her head and watching him walk away. But soon after, Victoria was found, and they rushed her to the hospital where they discovered that she had been stabbed 17 times. But miraculously, she did live. In 2015, after Brian Patrick Miller's arrest, the Phoenix Police Department went to go speak with Victoria. 
and they showed her a picture of Brian Patrick Miller. And she says that she is 95% sure that that is the same man that almost killed her in the park that day. But when she spoke to the Everett police about pressing charges, they informed her that they would not be proceeding with the charges due to the amount of time that has passed. So whoever this was, maybe Brian Patrick Miller, got away with nearly killing Victoria. And just two years later, in 2002, Brian Patrick Miller would actually be arrested for the stabbing of a woman who had asked him for a ride. But he was later acquitted after claiming it was self-defense. But along with the discovery of all of these cases that Brian Patrick Miller was undoubtedly connected to, and the cases that the Phoenix Police Department suspect he's connected to, was Brandy Myers' case. After Brian was arrested for the murders of Angela Brasso and Melanie Burness, his ex-wife that he was married to for eight years, Amy, came forward with information about Brandy. She told police that Brian told her about Brandy in the early 2000s, but she says a combination of not believing him and being terrified of him made her afraid to come forward until after he was arrested. Here is Kristen describing what the police told her about Brandy and this confession and the aftermath of it all. They called me on the phone, you know, okay, we know who did it and it's a serial killer and blah, blah, blah. And did I want to meet? I was going to meet with Tammy. They'd already talked to my aunt Tammy. So um, Tammy already knew all this. So they, they, and I think Tammy called me too. So I was going to go over and meet them at my aunt Tammy's house. And um, so I get there and they're like, okay, you know, this is like really graphic, you know, are you sure you want to know everything? And I'm like, absolutely. Like, what are you talking about? I've been waiting all my life for these answers. I want to know everything. So they're like, okay, like, you know, this is going to be really hard to hear. And I'm like, okay, it's whatever. Like I've been known. It was horrible from the minute I knew, like, I felt her gone, and I knew it was bad. I knew it wasn't even just bad. It was horrible, and I've known that all my life. So they just bring me in, and they start telling me about this canal killer, and they're like, yeah, and, you know, and they're telling me about the other girls. Do you remember back then this was going on? And I was like, no, you know, like, I was a kid. I wasn't really paying attention to that. And uh, so they tell me about him killing the other girls, and then... They tell me about the witnesses, like that she was knocking in the neighborhood and they really tell me the whole thing, man. And they tell it like kind of matter of factly, <laughs> like that she knocked on his door and he pulled her in the house. Um, but before they tell me that, they tell me there's eyewitnesses that saw her two doors down from his house, walking in the direction of his house. And the next house over wasn't home. And the house after that was Brian Miller's house. And she never made it to the house after his house. So how, and they had this information back then. So how this wasn't like put together, I don't know. And I'm fairly certain that they went in the neighborhood like that night. So, I mean, I imagine that she was in his bathtub dead and they're talking to him at the door. So you know, they don't, for some reason, they just don't put this together. And, um, so the witnesses put her there and she never came home. So then they tell me that she knocked at his door 
he saw this as an opportunity to act apparently like and honestly if you see the area i've been to the house like it it is if you just looked outside and you didn't see anybody like really nobody's gonna notice where this door is if you pull somebody in this house so they told me that he pulled her in the house and started stabbing her and um then he slit her throat and that's what killed her and then he wanted to keep doing things to her so he decided he would put her in her bathtub in his bathtub and he wanted to preserve her body so he could keep you know being a sick monster so he filled the the bathtub up with water and he intended to use cold water which would slow down her bleeding and slow down decomp but he was so excited um from having taken her life that he used hot water instead so that sped up her bleeding and decomp and all of this and and let me just pause there and say they're telling all of this to me they they told me right before they tell me this, that they know all this because his ex-wife came forward after he was arrested for the other girls. And then she told them how he would tell her these stories of things he did to women. And one of those stories is everything I'm telling you now. So anyway, um, I guess the neighbors start complaining about this smell and they're like, you know, so he decides that he needs to get rid of this body. So he just cut Brandy up into pieces and put her in black trash bags, stored her in his house till the next day's trash. And then he put the trash can on the curb. And again, his neighbors were like, bro, what's going on with your trash can? Like it smells like death. And he said that there was rotten meat inside. And honestly, nobody's looking in a trash can after you tell them that. So my sister just went to the landfill and I do not even understand how I believe that all of this was known back then. How was this not put together is what I wanna know. So they really just sat me down at my aunt's table and told me all of that. And I was just like, okay, like that's a lot to process, you know? Like, and, and then the woman um, detective told me, cause I, like asked a bunch of like around the about questions until like I could finally just say, did she suffer? And she was like, <laughs> I normally tell the story and I don't cry. <laughs> um, You're fine. You're fine. Um, she said, yes, she suffered greatly, but if it makes you feel any better, he caused death quickly. And I'm like, that doesn't make me feel any better. You know, it makes me feel more desperate to get justice for her. So, I don't know, Sarah. I know every detail to how she lost her life, and that's hard to live with, man. It's honestly hard to just keep breathing every day. But I have a beautiful life and children and a husband and, you know, and I got great friends. So, you know, we have to just keep going. But it's crazy to me that it's been five years you know, since I found out. And it's really been like damn near 30 years that she's been gone. No, I know. I know. And I mean, that is one of the things that I think sticks with everyone about Brandy's story is, you know, how can you know all this information and them not do anything? 
Right. Yeah, absolutely. So the, I was told, because of course I want to get on this now, you know, I've waited all my life to find out what happened to her. And they said, look, I need you to just sit tight, let us exhaust our avenues and see what we can do on our end. And I don't want you to jeopardize the case. And I'm like, oh my God, I don't want to do that either. Like we finally have answers. So I'm like, I'm just going to sit here and see what they can do. And then it was probably about a year of that. And, you know, of court being postponed and moved back and, you know, like two weeks at a time. And then they finally um, tell me that they did everything they can do. And like, basically because they don't have a body, no body, no charges. And I'm like, you have got to be kidding me. Like, you know, I, I don't even know what to say. Like it's beyond me. So I took on, um, the Maricopa prosecutor. And I mean, I gave, gave him a hell of a run, but I don't know <laughs> what I did in the end, you know. I told Kristen she needed to give herself more credit. Like I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, Kristen worked tirelessly fighting for her sister once the Phoenix Police Department told her that her best chance of getting justice was to create public pressure around the case. And she did. In addition to being featured by some of the largest names and productions in true crime, she also made her own video explaining Brandy's case and asking for people to share her story. And I'm here to say that she was important and she did matter. I was also told that because her body was thrown away, um, the Maricopa County Attorney's Office declined to take her case. Not once, but twice. And the cold case detective who tiredly, tirelessly worked on my sister's case looked at me dead in my eyes and said, I've done everything that I can do. It's up to you now. And he said, what you have to do is create a public pressure. And when he said it's up to you, I took that as a challenge and I said challenge accepted. I'm trying to stay calm. I've tried to make this video a number of times and it hasn't worked out. Um, so the purpose of this video is I need to go viral. I need to make it to a higher platform than what I've been able to accomplish so far on my own. I have no family support, um, which only makes it so much harder. These types of things either rip families apart or they bring them closer together. And in my case, it just destroyed us all. So, you know, sometimes families don't want to relive it. But the moment they told me what happened to my sister, I wanted to fight. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. But, like you heard in the audio, this statement from Brian Patrick Miller's ex-wife stating that he told her exactly what happened to Brandy Myers just wasn't enough for former county prosecutor Bill Montgomery to add Brandy to the list of Brian's victims in his ongoing murder trial or charge him for her murder separately. There are a lot of unanswered questions in this case. 
But it's hard for me not to ask, how can the Phoenix Police Department sit Kristen down and say, hey, we pretty much know exactly what happened to your sister, enough to come to your house and tell you that, but we can't help you. It's on you to create public pressure in hopes of getting this case prosecuted. Kristen doesn't have the resources the Phoenix Police Department does, especially the connections to the media that they do. Which is obviously why I'm here today telling you Brandy's story. I would be lying if I said this case doesn't frustrate me to no end. As so many of you know, I have felt that same pain, that same pressure, that it's on you to get justice for your sister. That even though you were just a kid, and you don't have the case file, and that it's been so long that collecting more evidence is nearly impossible at this point. It's on you. Good luck, kid. I still haven't decided if I think Detective Stuart Summershoe from the Phoenix Police Department's approach to telling family members of murder victims to get public pressure is an act of guidance and kindness, or the most polite way of asking us to shut up and go away. But this has understandably left Kristen frustrated. I don't even care if they add her to that current trial. I just want him to be charged. Like, you know, it's my understanding that the prosecutors are like, well, we've already got him on this other stuff. You know what I mean? So it's like, who cares about Brandy? Well, damn it, I care. You know what I mean? I lost everything that day. My mother died. My family died. We all imploded. Like, it took years to get myself personally, not to mention anybody else in my family, to a point where I'm just a functioning, capable, responsible, you know, quality person. Like I was lost and a mess and all of us were for a lot of time. So, you know, it's not even only about Brandy. Like I'm fighting for my own justice. I'm fighting for the life that I didn't have because she was murdered by this man and we have him in jail what's another trial? You know, what's another charge? Like, why do they care so much? Like, why is it such a big deal? I don't understand. But I really want to do all the same moves that you did and just bring this to an end, man. I know it can be done. It just, it's going to take a little bit of work and, you know, and that's fine, you know, because when it's all said and done, you know, I'll know that I did it. You know, I don't ever want to live with that regret. Like it it was bad enough to live with the regret all my life of not going with her, you know, and having survivor's guilt and survivor's remorse. And now, now that I understand that I have those things, I can work through those things and get better. But that was a lot of self-sabotage on most of my life and all of that. So, you know, there's a lot that I lost as well. You know, I'm fighting for all that. I'm fighting for my family members who aren't strong enough to do it. You know, I'm fighting for my mother, so maybe one day she don't have to drink herself to death just to go to bed. You know, I'm fighting a bigger mission, and I don't understand how they can know every detail of what happened to her and not want to charge him. So I really don't know if I should be focusing on trying to get with their case or just say, forget them. They got their own thing going on. Let me just, can we get her charged? Because that's what they keep telling me. It's going to be an after their their thing. And I don't understand why I have to wait for them to get mine mine going. Yeah, because it might be for some reason that I can't get added to this case, you know, like they don't want to 
throw something in there, you know, that isn't a hundred percent, you know, and the difference in these three cases is they did get the bodies back. Well, Brandy was thrown in the trash. She went to the landfill and that's not her fault. She deserves a day in court, right along with these other girls for this man to answer for what he did. And my whole point, my whole entire point to all of this, the only goal, the end result is a um, impact statement. That is all I want. Like I've made that clear to the prosecutor when it was still um, Bill Montgomery. I'm not looking for extra time for this man. I'm not looking for him to get the death penalty. I'm not looking for anything other than charges, official charges that she was murdered by him. And I want my opportunity to speak to him. You know, I have some things to say to him. I've waited damn near 30 years of my life to say some things to this man. And that's really all I want, you know, and you don't get that opportunity unless you go to court. And at the end of the court hearing, the judge gives the victims an opportunity to speak to their, you know, their abuser, their whoever victimized them. And that is what I'm going for. That is the only reason I'm doing this. You know, I just want to speak to him and let him know what he took from me and that he doesn't have power over my life anymore. Why he's making his ramen noodle, brushing his teeth in his little metal mirror. Like, I want him to know that and think about that. Like, I think about Brandy every day Why I'm just making dinner or trying to put my kids down. You know, that's my whole goal. That's the only reason I'm doing any of it. Brian Patrick Miller is currently incarcerated in Arizona, still awaiting trial for the kidnapping, sexual assault, and deaths of Angela Brasso and Melanie Burness. Unfortunately, his trial has been rescheduled several times due to the virus, but it is currently set for September of 2021. Recently, his lawyers tried to have the entire case thrown out based upon the way his DNA was collected. They argued that grabbing that cup from the chilies was a violation of his rights. But the judge quickly shot that down, and the trial appears to be proceeding as scheduled. It's obvious that Brandy's murder has had a detrimental effect on Kristen and her family. But as someone who has gone through something extremely similar and has seen the other side, I do have a lot of hope for Brandy's case. And a lot of that hope comes from the new Maricopa County prosecutor, Alistair Adele. The same prosecutor who, after almost 20 years, decided to press charges in my sister Alyssa's case after Bill Montgomery seemingly overlooked it. And my sister's case isn't the only one. With the help of the Phoenix Police Department, there has been a resurgence in prosecuting cold cases from decades ago since she took office. I feel like it's almost once a month at this point that their Hot Desert Cold Cases initiative makes an arrest in a decades-old Phoenix cold case. And I fully believe that Brandy Myers can be the next case added to this list of victories. Which brings me to our call to action. Now, this call to action is going to be a little different, because there's one from me and one from Kristen. First, I literally beg you to go show Kristen some support on the Facebook page Justice for Brandy Myers. I can tell you firsthand how much it hurts to do so much media for your sister and not get any justice. How brutal it is when that initial wave of support wavers and fades away. But more importantly, 
I can tell you how motivating and empowering it is when you feel like you have an entire community behind you. This experience has been brutal for Kristen. And I can tell you that she is in great need of some love, support, and hope. So please just take a moment, a minute out of your day, and go like and leave a kind comment for Kristen on the Justice for Brandy Myers Facebook page. This will be linked in the show notes and on VoicesForJusticePodcast.com. Next is Kristen's call to action. We actually went back and forth on this for a long time, during and after our almost two-hour-long conversation, because Kristen didn't really know what to do. But after much contemplation, she is asking that in addition to, of course, sharing Brandy's picture and submitting any tips you may have about Brandy to the Phoenix Police Department, that you contact both police and the new Maricopa County prosecutor, asking for their help in moving Brandy's case forward. You can reach the Phoenix Police Department at 602-534-2121 and the Maricopa County Attorney's Office at 602-506-3411. All of this information will also be on my website. As of recording this episode, last week would have been Brandy's 42nd birthday. That is almost 30 years that she's been gone. Like we've seen in other similar cases, your voice and your push could be the driving force, the pressure that the police and prosecutors need to finally get justice for Brandy. But, as always, thank you, I love you, and I'll talk to you next time. Voices for Justice is hosted and produced by me, Sarah Turney. For more information about the podcast, to suggest a case, to see resources used for this episode, and to find out more about how to help the cases I discuss, visit VoicesForJusticePodcast.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to rate and review the show in your podcast player. It really does help more people find the podcast and these cases in need of justice.